I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our series, The Death of Christian Art. American Protestant churches like Van City don't know much about elaborate liturgical vestments or icons or cathedrals. How did that happen? The scriptures tell the story of an artist God who creates and commissions wild, elaborate aesthetics, and yet our corner of the Christian tradition has become suspicious of art as expendable entertainment at best and dangerous at worst. So what do we do about it? One winter, some uh, 18 years ago, I was midway through one of my first extended visits to Vancouver, Washington. I was sitting uh, in a booth at Outback Steakhouse in the Vancouver Mall. Uh, Yes, before I'd sworn off eating stuff made from animals, Outback and the Bloomin' Onion were two of my favorite things. So uh, at the time, my girlfriend's sister and her husband were there. Uh, A few years later, my girlfriend would be my wife, and her sister would become my sister-in-law, not the one that's in the room at at the moment. But anyway, at this point, I was still getting to know the family. So I should say, I didn't want to say or do anything too weird, lest I somehow, you know, sully my reputation amongst them. Because at the time, it was my understanding that the Martinez family was very straight-laced. I would later learn this wasn't true. But uh, I thought that that was the case, and I wanted to date a one Abby Martinez. Her dad was a pastor. Her mom taught the women's church classes. Uh, Kids were all lifetime churchers. Now, to be clear, I was also a Christian. I still am, by the way. And... uh, (laughs) I had no ulterior motives or anything like that, but I'd learned over the years that maybe I was prone to the occasional perspective that someone might find unconventional. So you learn to kind of feel things out before you start talking, honestly, anyway. So uh, the Outback dinner was moving along just fine. I was making my way through a house salad when my girlfriend's sister brought up a terrible controversy unfolding in their church. Now, for those of you who weren't traveling in church circles in the late 90s and early 2000s, you should know that evangelicalism was very worried at the time about something called the emerging church, sometimes called the emergent church. Oh, it was a scary thing, the emergent church. Just listen to that name. So ominous. Where's it emerging from? What happens when it emerges? The way the kind of, you know, current political landscape is divided between like conservatives and progressives. That was something like the conflict between evangelicals and the emerging church. Now, honestly, it's not all that different from our modern disputes between orthodox expressions of Christianity and more progressive movements of quasi-Christianity. So in their worry, fretful, pearl-clutching evangelicals probably panicked a little too much. The emerging church was behind every bush. Anything that seemed like youthful or slightly novel was cause for concern at the time. Like, oh, they dimmed the lights during worship. Is this an emergent church, you know? Such was the uh, controversy broached that winter evening at an Outback Steakhouse in Vancouver. At my girlfriend's sister's church, someone had expressed interest in possibly painting a picture on stage during worship at a Sunday gathering. That's right, I'd never heard of such a thing personally. And quite frankly, it didn't really strike me one way or another. I couldn't think of any immediate, obvious reason that this was such a terrible idea. So I asked, what, does this person suck at painting or something? Because, you know, that happens. Somebody's bad at it, they don't know. 
So I could see a conflict there. She wants to paint, but she's terrible. But no, apparently the girl in question was a gifted artist. Everyone said so. Uh, oh, okay. So I, you know, frowned and kind of moved my salad around with my fork and then just asked, well, okay, what's the big deal? The big deal, I was told, was that such a thing would distract from worship. It would localize the attention on a painting and a painter rather than on God. If this girl wanted to paint pictures and if those pictures were Christian, then sure, I was told, she, she could do that, go nuts. But church is neither the time nor the place. And then here we are, all these years later, at church, talking about it. Tonight, we're beginning a new four-week series called The Death of Christian Art. And we're starting here with something of an introduction. We'll talk about art in the Bible as we go, whether or not the term Christian art makes any sense, why art matters to God, and how we, as disciples of Jesus, practice the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. I'm assuming that some of you in the room might be stoked to talk about something like this for the next few weeks. Maybe others among us wonder if this is really all that important. Is it uh, a tangential kind of hobby horse, a, a series on art, really? So whether you're at, wherever you're at on that spectrum of enthusiastic to suspicious, do me a favor, suspend judgment for the time being, hear me out. I'm going to argue that there's something here of real immediate importance for all of us that call ourselves disciples of Jesus, whether you're the creative type or not. Now, before we get into it, I do have some recommended reading for the series. The first is this great little book called Art and Faith by uh, Makoto Fujimura. Um, it explores what it means to make and understand art from a Christian perspective. Um, the writing's really great, kind of flowery at times, but it's a great little read. And I'm not saying little in a condescending way. I, I mean, it's a, literally a physically a small book. <laughs> I just realized I keep saying, it's a nice little book. Like, oh, it's cute. He wrote... Anyway... Also, I don't know of another book in the whole world with a foreword by N.T. Wright on the front and a pull quote by Martin Scorsese on the back. <laughs> yeah, figure that one out for yourself. Next, we have a book called Addicted to Mediocrity um, by Frankie Schaefer. Uh, this is actually a book that's out of print, um, but you can find really cheap used copies on Amazon. I checked um, earlier today, and there's still a bunch on there if you're interested. Other book retailers have them as well. Also a small brief read, but super helpful, I think, about what it means to be a Christian and make art and to observe art as a Christian, um, an argument for creative excellence, really wonderful. And next, I wanted to offer something a little different given the uh, subject material of the series. Um, so I chose uh, a book called The Creative Act, A Way of Being by acclaimed music producer, Rick Rubin. Now, Rick Rubin is not a Christian, um, and this is a pretty esoteric read, but it's also pretty interesting for both creative and non-creative people. It's written that way to kind of speak to both groups, to hear about what it means to do creative things. And it's from somebody who's worked with everyone from like Johnny Cash and Tom Petty to Jay-Z and Metallica. So we actually have a few copies of this one on sale at the bookstore tonight after the gathering at cost. It's, uh, I think, 18 bucks. Um, and we don't profit from that. It's just because we like books. And then finally, I have a book coming out on Tuesday. Oh, yeah, thank you. Wow, yes, thank you so much. It's called With All Its Teeth. Um, and I actually worked pretty hard to make this series something different than the book so that both experience would be, at least I hope, uniquely helpful. You're not going to have to reread the series in the book or vice versa. Um, we're going to have that book here next week. 
and we'll sell it at print cost. So it's only going to cost seven bucks. Neither myself nor Vincity will profit from those sales whatsoever. Um, some folks have generously told me, oh, I want to buy the book in whatever way helps you best. Thank you so much, honestly. Um, but if you're one of those people, I would just honestly be so happy and honored to have anyone read it. So if you want, you can feel free to order a copy online from wherever bookstore you like. Or you can wait and get one here for cheap, or you can get one from one place and get a cheap one for a friend or something like that. That's our recommended reading for the series. Okay, you guys ready to get to work? Yeah. Great, thank you. Now, we, if you didn't know, are a bunch of Protestants, Van City Church. That's right. So here's some backstory on that whole thing. If you bear with me for about five minutes, I timed this a little bit. We're going to take a very brief tour of church history. We're going somewhere. Stay with me. You guys are good, right? There you go. What were you going to say? Otherwise, no, boo, history. Now, Jesus of Nazareth had a community of 12 primary apprentices and then a crowd of followers called disciples. Um, the 12, the apostles, the, the, the rest of them, all apprentices of Jesus. And after Jesus was executed, he came back from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And there were uh, these were the guys and gals who went around the ancient Mediterranean telling the story of Jesus and performing miracles and starting churches. It was a whole thing, beautiful story. You can read all about it in a book in the New Testament called Acts. Now, according to Christian standards, things went amazingly. The gospel spread throughout the world just like it was supposed to, lives being changed, the poor being cared for, the sick healed, justice and righteousness, amazing stuff. But according to just about every other standard, things were really tough. Most non-Christians did not care for Christians or the apostles. So a lot of those early Christians and the apostles were either arrested and or executed. Being a Christian uh, made existing in society pretty tough. But that didn't stop the Christian movement from proliferating. In spite of constant threats of violence and imprisonment and persecution, the thing moved on. Until a dude called Constantine legalized Christianity in the fourth century through something called the Edict of Milan. It was what many, including myself, believe was probably little more than a shrewd, manipulative political move to seize more power. So he put Christian symbols on his army's swords and shields, and he sent them out to do some Christian killing. And that was the first time in hundreds of years that the church abandoned its consensus agreement on total nonviolence. Nevertheless, now the church could organize in public without constant hiding and being locked up or executed. So for the first time, official church councils were formed to organize and clarify exactly what Christians believe about certain things in keeping with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles to protect the Christian movement against false teaching and heresy and all that kind of stuff. So the Council of Nicaea was one such first group. They drafted this thing called the Nicene Creed. We still use it today. We actually say it in our church. Eventually, an emperor called Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and he split said empire in two, the West being Rome and the East being Constantinople. Now, over the ensuing years, certain factions split off from the church over disagreements about things like whether or not Jesus was fully God and fully human or just one or the other, or over certain political disagreements. Nothing like today. Then, the leader or bishop of the church in Rome called the Pope had become very powerful, which kind of led to this mounting tension between the East and the Western churches in Rome and Constantinople, respectively. All kinds of reasons. One was like they spoke Greek in the East and Latin in the West, so there was like a language barrier in the West, had added some words to the Nicene Creed without asking. It was a whole thing. Then, 
the Roman Empire fell in 426. A couple of hundred years after that, the West was now dealing with this new religion called Islam that was spreading out from Arabia, and that put new pressure on the church. So eventually, the Eastern and Western churches couldn't get along at all anymore, and they split in uh, 1054, something called the Great Schism. Now, you have the Roman Catholic Church in the West, the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East. And then later, the Pope sent thousands of soldiers to the East to reclaim the Holy Land, leading to centuries of violent warfare called the Crusades and a movement once known for total nonviolence and enemy love was now being led by someone with the power to send soldiers into war in the name of Jesus. And speaking of power, now church services were being held in Latin, the language into which the Bible had been primarily translated, which meant that only the educated and elite um, could even read from the scriptures or understand what priests were saying, which powerful religious leaders liked just fine. Eventually, priests started charging lay people to have their sins forgiven, further solidifying this huge barrier between God and people that could only be crossed by rich and powerful religious leaders on their behalf, which sounds a lot like exactly the kind of thing that made Jesus most angry. Go figure. Now, things have gotten so bad that eventually this German priest called Martin Luther wrote down 95 things, just a few things he thought were wrong with the institution of the church. He put it on an actual physical list, and he nailed it to some church doors in Wittenberg. And then later in Germany, along with, uh, or Luther, he's in Germany, with John Calvin in France and Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, they protested the shape that the church had taken, ushering in the Protestant Reformation. That's where that word comes from. And the ensuing decades, those protesters or Protestants splintered into all kinds of unique expressions and denominations like Anglicans and Quakers and Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and on and on the list goes. And then in the 16th and 17th centuries, colonists from Northern Europe introduced Protestantism to what we now call America, yada, 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 and here we are a non-denominational Protestant expression of the Christian movement based on and rooted in the teachings of Jesus and the early church, but of course, informed by the history of the Christian movement from around the world. Whew, all right, you made it. Now, that was the seminary church history class in five minutes. Well done, you survived. All that to note two important things. One, Though the core teachings of Orthodox Christianity remain anchored in the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures over the last 2,000 plus years, the way that the church has expressed its belief and practice has obviously changed. And two, we don't always realize how these changes have affected us. And it's not, a just, it's not just about like popes and Latin and whatnot. This, this story has had a massive effect on the way that we as Protestant Western Christians understand art. And this is a story reaching back thousands of years, even before the time of Jesus. Stay with me. Watch this. The Bible opens with the words, in the beginning, God, what? Created. Now, sure, yeah, obviously we know that. You guys all said it. But it is the sincere opinion of both theologians and biologists that the natural world is an overwhelming spectacle of feats, both functional and ornamental, utilitarian and mysterious. The creation itself is the undeniable work of artistic genius that goes well beyond a simple means to an end. It's intricate and complex and fantastic, the work of a wild, courageous artist, the artist, the first one, the one who made art up. In fact, 
One way we describe God is as the creator God, or another way of saying that same thing, the artist God. And if that was all that we had to go on, that would be plenty, but it gets better. When God first designed and designated a unique space for heaven and earth to overlap in something called Eden, the author of Genesis goes on and on describing the creative wonder of it all. When God next designates a unique space in which he will meet with human beings, it's in something called the tabernacle. God, the artist, chooses to involve human collaborators in the hyper-specificity of his creative vision to create a new people and a new way of life, and he does it with art. In Exodus, we began our uh, teaching with a passage that says exactly this. We read, where you re can read all kinds of detailed instructions for the construction and aesthetic specifications for the tabernacle, this incredible tent configuration that will house the actual presence of God himself. And you get the same kind of artistic, visionary detail for things like priest's garments, uniquely appointed individuals to work within the tabernacle and thus appropriately dressed for the occasion, aesthetically dressed for the occasion. And then we read all about the priest's ordination ceremony and the morning and evening sacrificial ceremonies, the tabernacle, even the outfits are overflowing with all kinds of allusions to and references to Eden as God creates and cultivates this space where, like Eden, he is and people are, and those two places can overlap. And then later, when God commissions the building of the temple, it's the same attention to aesthetic detail, and stepping into the temple would have been this wild audio sensory visual experience. Visual art everywhere, priests performing rituals, sounds of songs and prayers, smells of burning incense, a, a hyper-stylized sensory experience designed to immerse the worshiper in something extraordinary, art on art on art. But it's not just worship experience, and it's not always beautiful and uplifting. When God appoints prophets like Ezekiel, he calls him to a kind of wild, offensive street theater in which he'll bind himself with rope and burn animal poop in public as a protest against Israel's sin, which God already knows will not change Israel's heart. And this means that the outrageous spectacle of Ezekiel's street theater, in fact, if you read the story, God actually wanted it to be more offensive. He wanted Ezekiel to use human poop, but he conceded to animal poop when Ezekiel complained. It was a whole thing. And this means the performance was not utilitarian. It won't work. It doesn't work. And God wants it done anyway. Art for art's sake. Offensive art for art's sake. The sacrificial codes to which God called Israel were built around powerful external symbols in which the people of God would steep themselves to constantly tell and retell the story of sin and salvation. From burning incense to sprinkling animal blood, dark, profound, visceral, and often somber sign acts utilizing blood and death that afforded God's people artistic, highly symbolic rituals for living into and out of the story of what God was and is doing to redeem the world. Or consider this. When God appears to human beings in the scriptures, he always appears in vivid, wild, symbolic imagery. Or think about the way that the majority of God's speech in the Bible is depicted as poetry. Jesus himself preferred imaginative parables over ordinary plain speech teaching. 
And he didn't hesitate to utilize violent or divisive or dense metaphorical images and ideas to captivate and teach and even offend his audience. Gouge out your eyes, the servant cut into pieces, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And later, the wild Holy Spirit visions of the early church continue in preferring extraordinary artistry over practicality combusting in this real, like surreal nightmare vision of redemption called the Apocalypse of John, or the book that we call Revelation, which is so metaphorically dense with horrifying imagery, hardly anyone can even agree on what it means, and God knew that would happen, and God put it in the Bible just like that. And even if we didn't have all that, the literary construction of the Bible itself is a work of art that boggles the minds of those who study it, whether they're Christian or not. Academics who aren't even Christians dedicate their entire careers to studying the Bible as a work of literary sophistication. So why does an image like this seem so distant to American Protestant Christians like you and me? It's a uh, late 15th century painting depicting Gregory the Great, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, and St. Jerome, who in the 4th century was an advisor to Pope Damascus I. He's depicted with a book to acknowledge that he studied the scriptures. It's a nice way to be depicted. The other saints were all bishops, so they're dressed in uh, liturgical vestments and hats called mitres. To us, American Protestants in 2024, these look like weird outfits. And most of us have no idea what's up with the outfits other than recognizing that it looks Catholic, I guess. Maybe we even think that there's something off about the whole thing or something problematic. But if something about it tweaks you, and I'm saying this as somebody who's in the same boat. I see a picture like that, and I'm like, well, that looks weird. But I got bad news for us. Guess who was the first person to think of commission and command elaborate religious accoutrements? God. Here, look at this one. This is something called an epignation, which is uh, literally Greek for over the knee. It's worn on the right leg of Orthodox priests and bishops. The epignation is kind of a, a parody of a certain thigh shield worn by military soldiers during the ancient world, um, and it designates the wearer as a soldier only for Jesus and symbolizes the armor of God from Ephesians 6. And one source I consulted this week, I read that it, and I quote, represents the wearer's defending of the faith by smiting all that is impure and vicious. I said, freaking A, man. We need to have more of these. Anyway, <laughs> it seems unusual to us. Admittedly so. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It makes total sense. I'm not wearing any robes or epignations right now, and I, I only wear this, even for sacred occasions. Ask Dylan and Morgan. One thing I tell couples that ask me to marry them is, uh, heads up, I only wear this outfit, and that's not changing for your wedding. But like I said, the idea of elaborate symbolic outfits for the sake of like religious aesthetics or pageantry wasn't the invention of Catholics or medieval clerics. It was God's idea in priestly robes and staffs and ephods. Jesus wore a tallit, which is a Jewish prayer shawl that God commissioned in the Torah as a reminder of commandments and an external piece of fabric that you wear to symbolically and artistically represent something else. There's even this beautiful story in all three synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about a woman convinced that she could be healed just by touching the edge of Jesus' talit, his prayer shawl. 
In fact, that story was found depicted on the wall of a Roman catacomb from the fourth century, one of our earliest depictions of Jesus. There are no stories, on the other hand, about Jesus saying, who cares about symbolic outfits? Forget those. But we have. We have forgotten them. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all in sin because I'm not wearing a robe and a bejeweled hat, but it should invite us into an important question often overlooked by those belonging to churches like ours. Why does God care about that kind of thing? Why did he insist on it? Why did he make it up, commission it, command it again and again from Genesis to Revelation, external symbols and artistry? Why does God reveal himself to other people in wild symbolic imagery when he could be plainer and simpler? Why did God command rich aesthetic decorations and rituals and wardrobe? Why did God commission offensive street theater instead of just candid conversation? Why did Jesus prefer metaphor and parable when direct speech would have been easier to understand? In fact, people not getting his parables was a regular complaint lobbied at both him and the disciples. Why is the, the Bible itself so literarily complex, so rich in depth of artistry that it continues to divide readers over how best to interpret it? For those of you with experience hearing from God's Spirit, I'm sure many, if not most of you, would say that the way the Spirit often speaks to us is through images that He deposits in our imaginations rather than abstract strings of information. Why not always go with just plain strings of text that we hear in our mind's eye, so to speak? It'd certainly be easier to understand and to share, but no, week after week, when someone gets up here and says, here's what we feel like we're sensing from God's Spirit, an image of this, a picture of this. I'm not saying God never speaks in strings of information, but he often, if not primarily, uses visuals, symbols, metaphors. For centuries, all that has been the rich history of the Christian movement stretching all the way back to Genesis 1-1 to which all disciples of Jesus have belonged. Walk through the cathedrals of Paris where the architecture itself designed to tell the story of God across generations. Or visit the basilica in southern France that holds what is purported to be the skull of Mary Magdalene in a reliquary sculpted to look like her head. But when Protestantism broke from the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, the emphasis on art became as suspect as things like paying indulgences or offering confession to a priest. As usual, the pendulum swung, as the pendulum tends to do, and correction became overcorrection. It started really early. Um, I read a story this week that on December 4th, 1521, a group of Protestant university protesters tore down a wooden altarpiece and decapitated the statue of the monastery's patron, St. Francis. Reformed Protestants became increasingly hostile to paintings and sculptures and images as inherently idolatrous. John Calvin and his followers set out to actively remove images and artwork from churches. This altarpiece in St. Martin's Cathedral in the Netherlands was destroyed by Calvinists in the 16th century. Reformation backlash against Catholic art 
was so severe that eventually a 16th century meeting of Catholic leaders called the Council of Trent led even the Catholics to clamp down on the so-called pagan influence that had supposedly entered religious art, and they enforced stricter regulations against things like symbolism or nudity, even of baby Jesus. One 19th century art historian I read this week later described this decree as, and I quote, the death of medieval art. Years go by, and here we are, some of us left to wonder if someone painting during worship is a distraction, unnecessary, maybe even idolatrous. And you can look along the timeline from ancient Israel to Jesus to the early church to the schism, the Reformation, America, evangelicalism, and you can track when and basically how an emphasis on sacred aesthetics drifted from our particular church tradition. But what do we do about that now? Should we do anything? Even our stripped-down, no-frills corner of church history, we do have at least two powerful symbolic rituals commissioned by Jesus himself that we enact regularly and often don't think about how aesthetically rich and symbolically rich these practices are. One of them took place, as it usually does, at the outset of the gathering, communion, the Lord's Supper, when we remember the death of Jesus, not just by thinking about it in our minds, but by enacting a powerful symbolic ritual with substance, with physical symbols and imagery, and grotesque ones at that, that God subverts and makes beautiful. The bread, his broken body, the cup, his spilled blood, and we eat his flesh and drink his blood in communion with the living God who makes himself known to us and gives himself to us in self-sacrificial love, even unto death. That is good stuff. And it means something to Jesus that we do that. He told us to do it. There's also the sacred ritual of baptism where a person goes under the waters, which is a powerful visual symbol of one entering death. And then they are raised, so to speak, with Jesus to new life. In, in baptism, our story is joined to the story of Jesus, who is baptized in the story of the church. And it's the celebratory spectacle before the community of God's people. The early church actually had no paradigm of discipleship that did not commence with baptism. The commission then was repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not repent, say a prayer in your head for the forgiveness of sins and not repent and have a time of personal reflection. Why? Can God not save someone unless they go underwater? Of course he can, but these artistic rituals and symbols mean something to God. They're his idea, and he intends to change who we are through them, through art. And yet, here we sit, nary a mural in the joint, uh, which I wrote earlier this week, and then I saw someone has drawn a beautiful like chalk mural down when you descend the stairs to go to the, the kids' classes. But the point is that some of us don't think of ourselves as uh, the artistic type. And so maybe the spiritual discipline of art appreciation is mostly or entirely missing from our lives. Others of us love art and entertainment, music, TV, movies. We can't get enough of that stuff, but we've never really considered an intersection between the art and entertainment we consume and our relationship with God, for better or for worse. There is a veritable mountain of writing arguing against the damaging effects of entertainment overload. Too much TV, streaming services, whatever. And I don't disagree with all of that. But 
I would argue, an undeniable truth evident from the first page of the Bible to the final word of the text and on throughout church history is this. Art matters to God. He made it up. He reveals himself to us through art. He expresses himself to us in art. He meets us in art. Art that we make and art that we receive from others and from him. So to understand God, to understand Jesus and the scriptures, we have to learn to appreciate art. I've actually argued this before. If you go through your Bible and you cut out every crazy sounding art installation from God, be it earthly or cosmic, remove every poem, get rid of every strange symbol, every flaming lion head and water dragon, strip out the talking animals and the instructions for carvings and robes, censor the visions and the strange interdimensional beings, just leave the ordinary, no frills, plain speech lessons and see how much Bible you have left. A pamphlet at best. And it's funny the way that we accept some mediums that are prescribed by our tradition, worship songs, for example, uh, we take as a given. And we should, they're wonderful. But what if I argued that a movie might be as meaningful a place to experience intimacy with God as a worship song, or a painting, or a novel? And maybe some of you feel like you've never connected with God intimately and profoundly in a movie, or a painting, or a novel. But I would ask, do you know how? Have you tried? It's why I've always argued that all Christians should read novels. The genre of writing most featured in the Bible is narrative. The Bible itself is one big story. How can we expect to understand the literary form most prioritized by God and the authors of scriptures without steeping ourselves in it on a regular basis? And if art matters to God, it should matter to us, whether we're artists ourselves or we don't have a so-called creative bone in our bodies. If God wants to meet with us in art and creativity, as has been the case since the establishment of the cosmos and the creation of humanity, and if understanding art is crucial in understanding the one who made it up, then this is important. The spiritual discipline of art appreciation is important. For the next few weeks, I want to talk about how we do that. If you're in a Van City community, we have a practice for you guys up at vancity.church art. If you're not yet in a community, or if you're listening to this podcast elsewhere and you want to go deeper, gather with a few friends and just give it a shot. But to end tonight, I want to pose this question. Are you looking for and listening to God in art and creativity, in songs and films and stories? Do you expect to meet God in those places? Or does such a thing seem abstract or unnecessary or unknown? Do you make lots of room to be entertained by art, but no room to experience God in it or to talk to him about it or to apply it to the way that you understand your discipleship? And we'll have time over the next few weeks to dig into the scriptures and the practicality of how, but let's just start there with the question of, where are you at? Art matters to God. Does it matter to you? If art is, in your life, expendable or little more than mere entertainment, then maybe tonight we can make room to express our willingness to God 
to be led by his spirit into a new way of understanding art and to follow him where he leads. If that means more intimacy with him, whatever that means, we want to know him and be closer to him always. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.